that jarring cacophony once again tells you it's Thursday, it's the internet, and it's time for another episode of The Power of Three. You join me, your host with the most average, Kenny Smith, and I'm joined by a man who is, he's, at the moment he's looking really, really mad because he's part of a mad crew and he's showing off his muscles. The guns are out, the sun's out. It's the one, it's the only Mr. David Steele. Hello, Dave. Hello, Kenny. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Yes, the power of three continues to morph even further from its original premise. But who cares? Exactly. Well, technically, there will be a third person on when we speak with our guest, Mr. Richard Bignall, very soon, because we're going to be talking lost stories, the ones that were never made for the telly, not missing episodes, just to clarify in case anyone's getting all excited, in case we think Richard Bignall's found a whole load of lost episodes. Oh, no, found lost. oh that'd be amazing. Can you imagine if something like that happened and 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 now that i've said this hopefully i'm not jinxing it not happening but you know can you imagine if that happened and we got to talk about it on our podcast wouldn't that be amazing oh, very quickly if the case what story would you want back just one power the massacre there we go right on right so yes kenny we're talking about lost stories ones we are we're planned for the TV series, but not made. Yeah, so we're talking things like The Dark Dimension, The Laird of McCrimmon. Don't say too many, because I have to try and think of something to talk about. Yeah, I suppose we all know about them, you know, sort of, I suppose the first, you know, we heard about stories being lost that we were never going to be made. Well, from my point of view, it would have been The Nightmare Fair and The Ultimate Evil and uh, Mission to Magnus. Uh, but then, of course, we discover through the power of Doctrine magazine that these weren't the first. There were tons of years gone by so yeah that that was uh, always interesting these ones to sort of what could have been and what yeah, never it's, was it's sort of, I can't remember really when I first sort of became aware of this sort of phenomenon I was probably when I started reading Doctor Who magazine regularly and reading archive features or or you know I suppose books like the 70s and the 80s and the 60s which would have had details about scripts that didn't make I have a vague feeling I remember a time screen or a DWB feature that talked about such things but yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the original season 23 stuff is probably the most famous. Dark Dimension was probably the most disappointing because there was those of us at the time who were really, really excited about it. Yeah, interesting. Do you know what we should do? We should do an episode in the Dark Dimension. That, that would have been 30 years ago this year. Gosh, that would be interesting. Yeah, mm. I think we should. Let's, let's, let's come back to that one in the future because I know a man who knows all about it. I even know the man okay. who wrote it. Um, so, yeah, maybe we'll revisit that uh, further down the line. But, no, I've, I mean, they've always fascinated me. The likes of, um, you know, DWB started printing things in, in the 90s, the likes of Return of the Cybermen, which, of course, Big Finish have adapted fairly recently, um, and a few other, you know, ones like that. Um, Operation Werewolf by Robert Kitts was another one, and Douglas Camfield, that um, Big Finish haven't adapted a second Doctor one set in World War Two with teleports and things like that, I believe. Yeah, there's also I mean Big Finish have obviously you know mined quite a rich vein and getting a lot of them out, and obviously at the moment they're releasing Daleks Genesis Genesis of Terror with the art the original version of the Ark in Space to follow very quickly. From what I've seen, um, initial reaction to Genesis of Terror on on the interweb has been to be tactful has been very mixed. I, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to state an opinion at this point. Um, but I'm looking forward to the arc. Certainly interested to see what Johnny Morris has done with that to make it to make it viable. But there's all sorts. I mean, um, I think of stuff like the Killer Cats of Jin Singh or whatever it was. It was supposed to finish off one of the Tom Baker series. I remember, and 
I think about um, I don't know if this is one of the big things I've done or not actually the space whale the one that was sort of postulated yes. by yep. Pat, Pat Mills and the other chap that, that ran through several doctors without being made on television and also I mean, there's been a couple in the modern era as well I remember a whole lot of fuss about Stephen Fry supposedly writing an episode very early on when the series came back Wait, That's was right. it for series two? I can't it remember. Was for but it never, two. Yeah, and it was never made. And you sort of think, like, what went wrong there? It's sort of, you sort of wonder, like, you know, what after, especially after announcing it, you sort of think, what happened that it didn't? They didn't make it to the screen. Was it? Was it? Was it unfilmable, or was it just you know not what they were after? They wanted to go in a different direction. It's um, it's an interesting one. Yeah. I've, I just there's always these little glimpses, even you know things like from season one, things like Malcolm Hulk's The Hidden Planet, and uh, just all these you know wee glimpses of things we've heard talked about, but never were, and we never really got to find out too much about them. And then you hear things yeah. like Will, William Ems and people like that to submitting other stories over the years after Galaxy Four. Mm-hmm. And I think he turned it into a huge own adventure book or something, didn't he? That's right, I always yeah. think about. There's not supposed to be some French Foreign Legion thing that was going to be the original story for right now with Sarah Jane Smith. We're actually going to was hear that... about that very, very soon, oh. Dave. Okay, that'll do. Good, good. There's also, over the years, been a lot of chat about, you know, I mentioned the Genesis of Terror and the, the, the original version of the Ark in Space. They're not completely lost because they were heavily reworked and stuff. There's, there's other versions of other stories that have been talked about in hushed tones over the years. You know, like the original draft of the Doctor's Wife, original version of the Clause of Axos, the original version of The Three Doctors. How many times was the Ambassadors of Death rewritten? You know, you sort of wonder, like, there's, there's that aspect to it too, that the, you know, the, the please show your working versions of certain stories. <laughs> it's, as we say, like, Big Finish have done an awful lot of them. I think we talked about it once before quite a while ago, didn't we? I think when the last couple of unproduced Tom Baker ones came out, I think we talked about them. The, the original Revenge of the Cybermen and the the one that um the name is was Jonathan Lloyd I can't remember the the, the, the writer's name oh, I can't remember the guy's name John Lloyd John Lloyd came out came out running at the same time so it's something that you and I have talked about here before so we don't want to repeat everything that we've already said obviously yeah. but you've you've been chatting to someone about such things haven't you I have indeed yes um, the man who is a bit of an expert in these things he's found a hell of a lot of scripts and storylines and outputs over the years that we never knew existed. Uh, it's a man who may remember from Doctor Who magazine's Time Team, and it was <laughs> Mr. Richard Bignall. Yes, Richard is responsible for the the excellent Nothing at the End of the Lane fanzine, um, and he's done a lot of. You don't need me to tell you this, obviously, listeners, but he's done an awful lot of research and proper archaeology on Doctor Who over the years. So, if you're going to talk to someone about stories that hadn't been made and someone that knows their stuff and has done all the digging, he's probably the best man for the job. Yeah, he's the king of the lost world. Shall we hear from him? Oh, yes, please. Welcome to The Power of Three once again, Richard Bignall. Welcome, welcome, Kenny. Thank you very much. It's uh, lovely to be back with you. Well, today we're going to go somewhere a little different, not into our usual territory of Blu-ray research, much as I love it, but um, hopefully there's plenty more of those to come in the coming months and years. Um, But today we're going to talk lost stories as... You're regarded as, um, well, I regard you as the king of the lost stories, not in terms of writing them, because that would make you like the worst writer in the world, but in terms of the person who finds them. So when did your interest in these begin? Gosh, it would have been probably sometime around the mid to late 1980s. So 
I'm very much of a mind that although we have lots of uh, avenues of Doctor Who storytelling, be it with a multitude of stories that Big Finish have done or um, comic strips, milk chocolate wrappers, give a show projectors, whatever. There is a whole, and annuals, there's a whole multitude of, of storytelling that's gone on. But I think by and large, um, for all fans, I think that the central canon will always be what was televised. So that that will be your, your central trunk and then things will branch off of that and you'll choose whatever things you, uh, you're interested in. What always fascinated me about this subject of lost stories was it, it was a case of what if. So what if that core canon that you had wasn't what it was, it was something completely different? What if the stories that we've, we focused on and we all focused main ones that have been told actually on the television over the years what if they were slightly different and there was the odd mention of things in sort of Doctor Who magazine and um, Celestial Toy Room and um, whatever nothing too much though um, and then around the mid to late 80s I, I was trying to think actually which one I I found out about first and it was either it was either David Wiltshire's The Mende Fault. Um, David Wiltshire was the author who wrote The Nightmare Man for uh, BBC Television in 1981, I think. Um, or it was The Macros. I think it was The Mende Fault, actually, thinking about it. Um, and he'd given an interview, and I think he just said in passing in that, that he'd written... Or, or submitted a Doctor Who story. So I managed to find out David Wiltshire's address and I wrote to him and I said, oh, what, you know, what's this about a Doctor Who story? And he sent me a photocopy back of his storyline that he did. Um, now, by uh, all intents and purposes, I think it was an unsolicited one. I think it was just something that he tried um, to give out at the time because he was putting out stories to places like um, Tales of the Unexpected Anglia and stuff like that. So he was he was fishing a lot. But it was a fourth Doctor and a, and a Sarah story. And this absolutely fascinated me that there was, you know, there's like a story there that I had never heard of before and all of a sudden I can actually sort of get some sort of idea what it's all about. Um, and then the, the one that followed that would have been the macros, um, which was... Uh, came off the back off of there used to be a directory called the Screen International something or other um, and it listed a lot of actors and directors and what it was they were doing and I don't know why but I just happened to be flicking through this saw the entry for Ingrid Pitt and it just happened to say in that that she had written Doctor Who and the Macro Men didn't have a clue what that was um, but Screen International used to give you the addresses of people. So I wrote off. Um, and then, much to my surprise, uh, she ended up sending me an entire copy of the first episode of the script, um, which was rather gobsmacking uh, at the time. Um, and I, I think that really started the ball rolling for me. 
because it, it, you suddenly realise that there were an awful lot of, well, potentially an awful lot of stories which we didn't know about. And then it was a matter of sort of trying to dig out um, who maybe had written them or little hints, little clues in interviews or in articles and so on. Um, and it just started this whole roller coaster of me writing to loads of different writers uh, to find out whether or not they still happen to have anything remaining of their their ideas that they had done over the years. Uh, but it's been it's been an absolutely fascinating journey to take um, over the years. It's one that I, was, I still do occasionally if I find someone who uh, who has or a name pops up that we've not heard of before. Um, you get in contact with them. Uh, a lot of the time you don't get anything, don't get anywhere. Writers do tend to split into two separate camps. You either get those who keep everything they've ever done and those who keep absolutely nothing. Um, I would say the latter far outweighs the former. Uh, so more often than not, you're getting in contact with someone and they'll go, no, I don't have anything, but this is sort of what I remember of it. and you know, so on and so forth. But um, it's always nice to get those little nuggets of information out uh, uh, as to the as to the what ifs. Um, you know, what if things are slightly different in our core canon for the program? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the sort of the prime example. I mean, for myself, I've you know becoming aware of stories that were but weren't would be when Target did the Lost Stories novelizations when we got. The, the first three with Nightmare Fair, Ultimate Evil and Mission to Magnus. And then I was always hoping that there'd be more of those, but sadly not to be. But of course, since then, we've at Big Finish have uncovered a few and mm. a few extra ones and made up a, maybe not quite the season we got on TV, but a sort of half a representation of it. That must have been, I'd imagine that some of those had come into your possession over the years. Well, yes, it's sort of actually the Big Finish range I've been I've helped with quite a lot over the years uh, with regards to the lost stories um, and in fact back in would have been about I'm trying to think how, how far back it was now um, when I originally contacted Morris Farhi about Farewell Great Macedon um, that was another very chance thing um, I've happened to see I think it was a brief interview or a comment, uh, and it wasn't actually to do with Doctor Who at all. It was to do with the prisoner, because Morris had written a an unmade prisoner episode called The Outsider, um, and uh, a guy called Stephen Ricks, I think it was, who did a lot of stuff with regard to the prisoner, had spoken to Morris, and Morris had briefly said, "Oh yeah, uh, yeah, amongst what I'd done was some stuff for Doctor Who that didn't get accepted." So I got in contact with Morris, and then one day I got this heavy thump coming through the letterbox as an envelope containing nearly 400 pages worth of uh, photocopies hit the map. And Morris, bless him, had done the entire script for me. He copied the entire script, and he basically said to me, look, if you want to do something with this, do it. You know, uh, if 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 you want to sort of get it out to your friends and you know the Doctor Who fans, you do it. But of course, back then you didn't really have any easy way of doing that. You know, self-publishing wasn't a thing. Although I was involved with fanzines at the time, fanzines were quite small, and if you did anything proper, it was quite costly. 
Um, and I remember very early on in the Big Finish range, um, getting in contact with Gary Russell and saying, I just had a script through for this entire unmade First Doctor story. Would it be something that Big Finish might be interested in doing something with? And Gary basically said, oh, that's very interesting, but I don't think so. Because at that time, Big Finish wasn't really interested in going back to doing anything with the previous Doctors who weren't alive anymore. Um, that obviously changed a little bit later on. Um, but then we, we went through and uh, eventually when the range started, kicked off, um, I think I got in contact with uh, David Richardson and uh, and said, look, I, I've got several bits and pieces and quite a lot of outlines and scripts and whatever. You know, are you interested in any, any of these and adapting these? And he went, oh, yes. Uh, so, you know, we, we started sort of chatting and um, he would occasionally send me an email through saying, you know, what what have you got? What's possibly available? Um, and so it's been really lovely to, you know, help help the big finish range uh, go along and actually give a chance to air some of these things. And also, I think for the writers as well, um, because obviously their work that, you know, that this was stuff that they worked on in the hope that it was going to be made. And now it has been in some form. Uh, some form or other so it's um i think it's sort of quite quite rewarding for them as well yeah i mean i think farewell great macedon is, is you just read it and you just think it's just so in the spirit of marco polo you just think this so should have been made um and it's a beaut and well, as you know I, I have the script book and uh and that for prison in space as well a prison in space that was it's very 60s shall we say but it's great fun when you take it in that context Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I know a lot of people don't seem to particularly like a prison, the prison in space um, because of uh, because of the humour level in it and um, and some of the things that go on. But yes, it's very much of its time. You view it as something of its time the same way as you might do the carry-on films or whatever. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of little nugget of history. Um, and sort of becomes more interesting as well the more you start sort of delving into things um, with things like the prison in space at the time when uh, Dick Sharp was uh, allowed me to have a copy of his um, uh, all the work that he'd done on the program uh, what we didn't know until much later on when we uh, went to the BBC written archives and had a look at his writer's contrib contributor file was that it was all part of the setup for the new companion as well that they were going to have uh, when Jamie was going to leave and this new character of Nick was going to come on board the TARDIS. So uh, one of the lovely things with all these lost stories is that you know you can, you can get hold of them and then you start finding out more about them and being able to put them into context uh, you know, as to what they were trying to do with them, maybe why this particular script was being developed and written if it was done for a specific purpose. So, yeah, it's um, it's a lovely little gem of its time, I think. Definitely. And I think there's been so many of them over the years that you know we've heard about and things that, I mean, more recently, things like um, John Lucarotti's original version of The Ark, uh, that's been found, mm. obviously, in the Nation Archive. A big finish will be able to find Daleks, Genesis of Terror, both of which are on the way in the next few weeks. Well, the Genesis of Terror, 
documentation is actually in the BBC production file for Genesis still. Um, it's not a very long document, so it'll be interesting to see what um, Big Finish have actually done with it in the end. Um, we actually discovered the existence of the Ark, of John Le Carotti's version of the Ark, when we were doing the uh, special edition of the Ark in Space DVD, um, which would have been for one of the revisitation sets. Um, and I got in contact with the Lucarotti family via their agent um, and got in contact with John's wife and I said just by chance I don't suppose he kept any of his work and she went oh yeah it's all in the trunk in the uh, in our bedroom um, and originally she was going to allow us to take um, a copy of the Ark and put it on as a PDF uh, on the DVD to include on the DVD um, and then she got cold feet over it and decided she didn't want to do it she gave us a few details which we put into the um, production subtitles uh, for the story so we were able to um, although we knew two of the episode titles we didn't know uh, the other two what the other two were so we knew about Puffball and Golfball. We didn't know about, I think it's Camellias and Buttercups, uh, the other two titles. Um, so she was able to give us that information. Um, although she did confirm that uh, she didn't have any of John's other work. So she hasn't got his original version of the massacre, unfortunately. Um, rats. Uh, wouldn't that be nice? Um, but yeah, so it's, it's lovely to be able to, you know, finally see what um, Lucarotti's original vision for the Ark in Space was. Um, and of course, to have a, another example of, of his writing, you know, obviously we've got um, that from very early on in the series, but it's, it's very interesting to see what he does later on as well. Yeah, I'm fascinated to hear how these uh, sound, so bring them on. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't got long to wait, which is great. I suppose you've you must be regularly finding you know, through your researches that you're finding mentions of things that maybe you hadn't heard of before and there might be sort of wee leads that could possibly chase up on uh, yeah well things come out of the blue it's a bit like I don't know if you remember many years ago um, Donald Rumsfeld gave uh, a speech that he got a bit lambasted over um, where he talked about the um, the known knowns and the known unknowns and, um, and of course what he meant was that there are there are things that we know about and we've got information about and then there are things that we know happened but we don't have any details for so it's a bit like saying yes we know um, we know that you know, someone might have written a particular story uh, and we know what the title was, but we know absolutely nothing about what the content was because, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. So it's a known unknown. The, the problem is, which he went then went on to say in the speech, is that um, there is also that third group of we don't know what we don't know. So you don't know what writers tried writing for the programme. So sometimes things will come completely out of the blue. Um, so when I was doing the research, 
probably must have been for season 17, I think, on the Blu-rays, I got out David Fisher's file. Now, of course, David Fisher, as we know, started off in season 16 uh, with his commissions, then did uh, a few stories over the next um, three seasons or so. But it turns out he'd been submitting stuff since the early 60s, uh, which we didn't know about. So uh, we have um, a handful of uh, story titles that David Fisher um, had sent in to the um, production office. So we've got things like The Whirlpool of Time, uh, which he sent in in 1964. He later sent in in December 64, The Greatest Game of All. Uh, 1966, he then sends to Jerry Davis three outlines, The Locusts of Time, The Lords of Nepotis, and The Last of the, of the Lemurians. Um, now, I did get in contact with David about these, and sadly, he hadn't kept anything. He was a writer who had kept uh, very, very little of his stuff. Um, but, you know, it's always worth asking because you never know what's what's going to turn up. But it's those sort of things that you're sort of suddenly come across completely unexpectedly because no one, when we looked at David Fisher's uh, contributor file before at the, at the BBC, obviously you tend to only go back to when he started doing his work in the late 70s for Doctor Who. You don't particularly go back beyond that to see if there was anything. And I just thought casually I'd flick back to see if there was anything. And there was these, you know, three or four letters uh, in the file, which actually told us that between 64 and 66, he was actively, whilst he was working at Scottish Television, he was actively sending out these um, these ideas to um, to the Dot Two office. So uh, it was fascinating to find out, you know, things like that. Um, and it's uh, and sometimes you know you go on these sort of weird little journeys as well. I think probably the most conv convoluted one I've done concerns a story called Ghost Planet which was written by Robin Squire um, and this was being done around about the time of season 20 or so um, and Ghost Planet was an unusual one because um, whilst a lot of story lines sometimes even sort of uh, scene breakdowns are done which is the next stage of the process um, things tend to grow into a halt there. You, sometimes it will go to the point of asking someone to write a first episode script so that they can see what dialogue is like, but very often it doesn't get past that, which is why it's very, very unusual to get a full set of scripts, because if you're paying out for a full set of scripts, you know, you're not really going to want to be paying out thousands and thousands out of your budget unless you've actually got some intention of actually producing the thing. But Ghostlight was an odd, uh, not Ghostlight, Ghost Planet was an odd one because it went to a full set of scripts. And it was by this writer, Robin Squire. And I managed to find someone called Robin Squire. And I wrote to Robin, and Robin said, oh, It's not me. So, sorry, it's got, that's got nothing to do with me. Um, must be someone of a similar name. So the next couple of years, I sort of tried a few other routes to see whether or not I could find who the writer was. And then I went through Robin's BBC file um, and found out an old address for him at the time, and then I was able to trace him that way. So I wrote to this other Robin Squire, 
who happened to be exactly the same one that I contacted two years previous. Huh. And Robin, this is the Robin Squire who became an assistant script editor in 1969 for Doctor Who. He was the Robin Squire who plays the main Auton in Spearhead under the moniker of Ivan Auton because the guy who was going to play it um, ran off screaming when they put the mask on. He also appears in Demons. He also appears in Legopolis. So he's the guy, at the, when we first see the proper Pharos telescope, he's the one who's sitting there with his headphones on, listening to the music with a cup of coffee in his hand. That's Robin Squire. Um, Robin had submitted this script and it had gone through all the way through the process. Storyline, scene breakdown, full set of four scripts. And he has no memory of it whatsoever. It was only when I actually showed him his own BBC documentation showing that he got paid for it, uh, did he actually believe that he actually wrote it. He's got no memory, a total and utter blank. Now, I, you might expect that possibly if someone had only sort of maybe submitted a storyline, you know, idly put a storyline together. I mean, it, was a, it was a bit like that with um, with Terence Dix. Terence wrote, mid-1970s, he wrote a, a storyline called The Haunting. Um, of which he remembered nothing at all. Didn't jog his memory at all as to what it was about. And Terence was another one who, um, a bit unbelievably, having seen Chris Chapman's documentary uh, with Frank Skinner on Terence, when you go into his study, but Terence was one who didn't keep anything. He, he kept none of his work at all. Uh, on the program so he had nothing to refer back to and he couldn't remember anything about it but that was just the storyline he submitted so probably something he maybe done, did fairly quickly in the past into the mist of time but with Robin it was something that he'd spent months on writing a full set of scripts didn't have a clue couldn't remember a thing about it couldn't remember even doing it um, so you know you, you get these sort of rather unusual situations where 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 people just seem to completely forget about what they've done in the past. Yeah, that's bizarre, because the one that I always wondered about was The Imps, uh, which obviously William Imps later adapted as a make-your-own-adventure, and you think, was that based in memory, or was he working on original scripts? That's one that's always bothered me. Do you have any answers? <laughs> um, yeah. The Imps, I don't think he had anything for. He did have... William did have three other storylines which he'd sent uh, over the years I think up as far as the Davison era but I don't think he, he kept anything for the imps this was um, something that um, Marcus Erner put me on to because Marcus had gone and spoke, uh, spoken to William many years ago uh, and had a chat with him and um yeah, and it was it was via Marcus that I was able to find find these uh, other storylines. But it doesn't look like he kept anything for the imps at all. Now it could be, of course, that he had. He got it out to do his work on the book, and then it all got separated off from the, the rest of his stuff, or you know, he maybe tossed tossed them away when he finished with them. But yeah, it would be would be fascinating to know what that one was about. Yeah, I suppose it's one that you could sort of reverse engineer, but um, 
then you wonder which is the correct storyline and which is the bits he's added in to make it work as a book. Anyway, but I suppose one 60s treasure trove you did come across was that of Brian Hales. Yes, that's right. I, I'd managed to find out the agent who still looked after Brian's estate and it was via the agent I was able to get in contact with Brian's son, Mark, and I'd asked him about three of the outlines that we'd known about uh, that I think published, the names of which are published in the 60s, I think the House Thomas Walker book. I'm trying to remember what, what they were. Was it the um, the Ocean Liner? That's one that rings over. Um, yeah, there, there's, there's three of them in there. The one with a clock. Um, and I, yes, yes, that's it. And uh, and I possibly asked from memory about Lords of the Red Planet as well. So so it was just asking about those three, and then I got had a contact from Mark saying, "Yeah, I can't find two of those, but I found a whole stash of others that he's done." Um, and he said, "I'll photocopy them and, and send them over to you." And so he sent sent over this whole collection of different storylines that his dad had done for the first four Doctors. Some of them were more detailed than others. Um, you obviously had Lords of the Red Planet in there as well, uh, which was quite a detailed breakdown because that obviously got got quite a long the way down the line. That was also originally written with a new companion, Nick, uh, in place as well. And, uh, and that was quite nice as well because you had, Brian had given the Ice Warriors a race name uh, in Lords of the Red Planet, which we didn't get in the original story, but we do in Lords of the Red Planet. So yeah, so, so all of a sudden you had all these different outlines. Uh, funnily, the, you know, two of the ones that I'd actually asked him about, he, they didn't have. But he'd also dug out a couple of other small bits, which we, we did put on the DVD and which are in print over the years, which was a couple of bits relating to the Curse of Peladon and uh, a quick sketch that Brian had done there of his original, what he originally envisaged Agador being, which was a giant centipede. One can only wonder what 1972's Doctor Who would have made of uh, of a giant centipede. It probably would have been a, a, a duvet with a pair of pincers on it or something, but um, yeah. If so, we were lucky. Indeed. Perhaps we should be happy with what we got. Yeah, just the mind, uh, the mind boggles. The mind absolutely boggles. I suppose that's the, the joy. And then, of course, getting to hear them being adapted by Big Finish when you found these things. There must be an extra wee bit of joy in there for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 lovely to be able to sort of finally hear them. It was it was so nice to hear Farewell Great Macedon being done. Did Morris get to hear that? To the, do you know, I honestly don't know. Honestly, don't know. I never asked him that. I should have asked him that. Uh, hopefully, he did. Hopefully, a copy was sent to him. I was invited down to the studio for one of the days of recording um, for Farewell Great Macedon, and I was I was so impressed by what they were doing with it. it in some ways, it's a it's a bit of a shame it didn't come later in the range when they were doing full castings rather than more sort of a, a, a companion chronicles type version of it but it was it was so lovely to hear my my biggest memory though of that particular day 
was sitting there rather nervously. They were doing pickups for the other episode, the sample episode that Morris had done, um, the Fragile Yellow Arca Fragrance. And they were doing pickups uh, for that, just finishing off some bits and pieces of the recording for that before they went into the main body of uh, Macedon. And, and I sat there with the script whilst they were going through, while they were in the booth doing it. And they kept giving this, uh, talking about this character called Lamb. Only I, I, I sat there and I, I piped up and I said, do you realise it's not? he's not called Lamb? It's I am, I A M B, because the names that Morris had chosen were, were a bit Captain Scarlet, really. They were sort of like melody and harmony and things like this. And I am was coming from iambic pentameter. Yes, I was thinking that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and and I, I said to them, uh, Do you know you're saying this wrong? It's it's supposed to be I am, not lamb. And they went, Oh my goodness. But fortunately, we was able to go through the script, and he's only actually mentioned in the dialogue, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times. So they were immediately able to do some fill-in lines, pick-up lines, in order to, to slot it in. So if you listen to The Yellow Ark, any time that I am is mentioned, that's actually an inserted uh, bit of tape gone in there to, to cover over the, the, the mistake from the previous day. It was absolutely lovely listening to Farewell Great Macedon being done. I was blown away with John Dorney and what John did with Alexander. It just came over so well. And it was it was really nice, actually, because at the end of the day, I was allowed to go in and do a few um, back in Wild Tracks as well. So at the very end of the story, I'm in there sort of in the background, mumbling away on a few occasions. But uh, if you listen to the very end of the story, when... All the generals start squabbling. Alexander is dead, and all the generals start squabbling about who should be the next leader just before the, the, the story ends. I'm in there audibly saying some, something like, no, no, don't pick him, pick me. And so, so that's me in the background. That's my, that's my big finish claim to fame there. It's been lovely to, you know, that so many of these stories have been adapted. So, you know, sometimes you have to do fairly healthy extrapolations out of them. So, you know, things like some of the Brian Howes outlines are only a few pages long. So you're you're taking that as a sort of core of your story and building upon it. Some of them obviously are, are more healthy in the number of pages that you've got. Some of them have been, shall we say, adapted slightly more away from what their original story was. So um, the macros is one that I think is veers away quite a bit, personally, from the original script. Because only the first episode actually existed. They only got around to finishing the first episode before they got told not to bother doing the second one because it was all too comic. But it, it, the, the story sort of veers off quite a bit from what the original script was. So. I mean, I suppose we're all aware of some storylines over the years, like the original versions of things like Pyramids of Mars before Robert Holmes gets hands on it and Terence's version of Brain of Morbius. Well, from what you've said, we know that Terence's version will be completely gone. So obviously there's a there's still a few storylines out there that would be of interest and there's probably ones that we've never even heard of um, that may be out there. I mean, are there any that you've, you might be aware of that you would like to track down but don't name your ultimate target yet 
Oh, goodness. Um, it would be really, really lovely, wouldn't it, to find out what Christopher Priest's stories were like. Sealed Orders and the Enemy Within. I, I've, I've spoken to Chris Christopher a number of times, and he's absolutely adamant that whilst he's alive, they will not see the light of day again because he was treated so... He feels he was treated so appallingly badly by both J&T and Eric Saywood and the BBC in general. But it just makes you all the more curious as to, as to what they were actually like. Chris was told at the time that he couldn't write, which for someone who is a, a, a novelist is, was quite a big knockback, and I think that's what upset him so much. It was one of the things that upset him so much. Uh, amongst others uh, and whilst it may be true that writing a novel is a completely different discipline to writing a television script and maybe that's what they were trying to get at very untactfully it would still be absolutely fascinating to find out what those yeah what, what it was actually like um, what those stories were actually like yeah it would be really, really interesting to find those. Uh, and I guess sort of some of the others as well, like we'd love to know what Robert Holmes did on stuff like Yellow Fever, simply because it's Robert Holmes, you know. Uh, any chance to hear something else from the likes of Robert Holmes um, would be absolutely fascinating, overloaded with requirements. So, you know, all the things he was being asked to include, not only the Old Dons, but Singapore and the Master. Uh, despite what Mr. Ian Levine says, the Rani was definitely going to be in it because Pip and Jane Baker were paid off for the use of the character for three episodes. So the Rani was definitely going to be in it. Ian says that she couldn't be because she was off doing Dynasty at the time, but she hadn't actually gone to do Dynasty this would have been done and dusted before she actually went off to even start working in California for that. So, um, yeah, so there's every possibility it would have been the Rani. But, yes, it would be, be fascinating to know what, what things like that were like. Yeah, so many unknowns, and you just sort of... You just wonder how many other things that you don't know about are still out there. You know, how many perhaps very well-known writers have tried doing stuff over the years and they've got stuff tucked away in boxes in the loft or, you know, stuffed away in envelopes in drawers, just waiting to be discovered. Uh, it's uh, it's just a matter of going out and finding them if we can. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been we've been very lucky with what... Um, obviously, the work that you've done has been fantastic. I mean, I remember the first time Andrew Smith sent me sort of his original outline for the first Sontarans, and that was the first time I'd seen anything like that. And you could just read through and just think, yep, yep, I just, this would have been great. And um, obviously to hear the finished version from the original author was great. I mean, I take it you've, uh, yeah. do you have any particular favourites of the big finish adaptations? I, I am very fond of, uh, as I said, of Farewell Great Macedon and Prison in Space as well. I think that works very well the way they've done it. And I think... Fraser did a, a re really remarkable job doing Troughton on that. I think that's that's thoroughly enjoyable. I've listened to most of them actually, and most of them I've really enjoyed. They've sort of captured the the spirit spirit of it really well. I was listening to um, Return of the Cybermen, 
the other day and it was the first time I'd heard the uh, I can't remember the name of the, the gentleman who does Harry Sullivan now Chris Neeler. Um yes but he's he's got the inflections of Harry so well you know it really does does sound like Iamata and of course Ian himself tried writing for Doctor Who as well that's another one that we we don't have anything for but it's 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 like all of these you know I, I end up trying to contact either the the agents or the estates or the families or, or whatever or the writers themselves if they're still alive and probably nine times out of ten people don't have anything anymore it was just something they did very briefly at some point in their career and they've not kept any any information but at least you have an answer as to whether or not these things exist or not what drives me up the wall is where you sit there and you someone uh, sadly passes away and you think oh if only we'd asked them this or if only we'd asked them that you know and and done it while we had the opportunity and we haven't so i think these things are always worth following up because you never know what's going to come back big finish do know that there are other outlines that i've got um, which haven't been made yet so they are available at some point in the future should they wish to do so you, you mentioned earlier on lewis griefer's version of pyramids of mars well there, there is a, a an outline of that in the bbc file um, there's the outline of the original Hand of Fear, the six-part hand version of Hand of Fear that was completely different. That's That was in the BBC files as well. Annoyingly, very annoyingly, the BBC did have a copy of the full script of the original version of A Gamble with Time, which they'd kept in the BBC script unit when that was up and running. But when that closed down, they got rid of it. So, unfortunately, the only copy of that original version of A Gamble with Time with, uh, with the various characters that David Fisher had written for that, yeah, that's, that's unfortunately and sadly gone. There, there are PDFs on the Season 17 Blu-ray of scripts that have the title A Gamble with Time, but that was just a carryover of the title onto the uh, story that Douglas Adams and Graham Williams wrote so they're not those original scripts the only information we have of those is what was written in the frame many years ago when I think Stephen James Walker uh, got a chance to actually um, see the information see those scripts firsthand that's it that's all that remains now of of what those original scripts were like but yeah so so unless they suddenly sort of turn up from somewhere you know, I, I always wondered at, at one point whether or not we could ever find the Fifth Doctor's original story. It seemed to go under half a dozen different titles. Project Zeta, Zeta Plus. Minor, Zeta, Zeta Plus, that's right. Um, because uh, what was interesting when we went through the file for, I think it was for to Doomsday, it became apparent that that had been distributed the scripts of that had been distributed to the main designers and to the technical managers and that was technically in production for about a week before the scripts got pulled so whilst the writers don't have copies of those anymore you know you always wonder well they obviously duplicated enough of these to to go around to all the relevant departments i wonder if anyone had started work on it the same way as they obviously had done for um, the Gallifrey story at the end of season 15, um, Killers of the Dark. You know, that had obviously gone out because 
they, they started doing costume designs for them. So, yeah, there, there, was, there was obviously a, a thought process there. So you never know what might possibly turn up. The Camba dream. Oh, dear. Two of the things that we know about or familiar names to fans will be the Red Fort by Terry Nation, a lost heart, no story. And then, of course, Douglas Campfield's French Foreign Legion story that was going to kill off Sarah Jane. And, but, and of course, ultimately, we got to the Hand of Fear. So what do you know about those? Well, the Red Fort, we hardly know anything at all, apart from what is written, I think, on either two or three documents, early documents. And it isn't a lot. We have the commissioning document for Terry Nation, uh, from September 1963, which is to, for him to write a seven-part story called Doctor Who and the Red Fort, and it specifies that it was going to be, the setting was going to be 19th century India. And that's pretty much it. There is a scheduling document, a couple of scheduling documents a little bit later, which shows that they were going to slot the Red Fort in as the eighth story in the first season to be shown after Malcolm Hope's The Hidden Planet. But apart from that, we know nothing. I have asked the Nation family whether or not anything remains of that, and they've never been able to find anything uh, of the Lost Four. So yeah, I, other than knowing that it was set in 19th century India, that one's a, a bit of a mystery. And to be honest, we don't actually know an awful lot more about the Lost Legion, Douglas Canfield's story, either. I would imagine that this came up in conversation whilst he was in production for The Seeds of Doom, because he is commissioned... The Seeds of Doom finished production in December 1975, and Douglas is commissioned to write The Lost Legion in January of 1976 which is going to be a four-part story, and he's due to deliver the entire thing by the following month, which he does, and then we don't know what happens with it. Obviously, they decide that it's not the way that they want to go with it. So it lies fallow. And, of course, as, as we know, a few years later, Douglas died in January 1984. Then, curiously enough, six months after that, in John Nathan Turner's archive of papers that were sent over to the BFI and forms part of his special collection of the BFI, there is a letter that was sent from Eric Saywood to Sheila Canfield. And that comes 1984, same year, 1984. Comes six months after Douglas has died. And evidently what had happened was that via Terence Dix, Sheila Canfield had resent the scripts for the Lost Legion to production office for some reason. Whether or not they had asked for them, whether or not Terence had recommended it, whether or not it was just uh, an act on Sheila Canfield's part, we don't know. The, the letter that Eric writes back basically says the script has arrived but I can't do anything with it because I'm just due to go off for um, six weeks, I think. It was six weeks leave. So he was out of contract at that particular point, which is the point where he goes off and he writes uh, Revelation of the Daleks. 
Then he comes back onto BBC contract and continues as script editor. So nothing happens to it in that particular time. And then it disappears. Obviously, they didn't do anything with it, but the script itself apparently never got sent back when they rejected it a second time. All that survives of it are three draft pages which uh, Sheila Canfield found when Phil Newman was putting together the Douglas Canfield tribute that The Frame published in 1990. And he went to interview Sheila as part and parcel of that, and she handed over three draft pages that they'd found. So there is a short piece of one scene uh, in that. It's It's very difficult to determine much of the story from it. But that is all that survives. Now, this would seem to be a little bit of a habit of the production office at the time, because the same thing happened with Pennant Roberts. Pennant Roberts wrote a story called Dragons, uh, Dragons of Fear. And he is first commissioned to do Dragons of Fear in 1979. And he's commissioned by Graham Williams and Douglas Adams. So the commission is, is by Graham Williams and Douglas Adams. It then gets passed, the completed work gets passed to JNT, and JNT authorizes Pennant Roberts to be paid again for a major rewrite, which he does, but they still choose not to, to go with the script. Now, I contacted Pennant about his scripts in the late 1980s, and Pennant said that his story, and Dragon's Fear was the one that they that he later renamed Erinella, he said that he was asked to resubmit them later on, once again. And he gave, uh, I think he used the word foolishly, sent to the production office the only copies that he had remaining. And he said, but they've never sent them back to me. Now, John was still in the production office at that time. The production office was still going because they were doing season 26 at the time. So I got in contact with them, said I'd been in contact with Pennant. Pennant said he'd never got his scripts back. He would actually sort of quite like them because he was willing to let me have a look at them. And I got a letter back from John basically saying, we've had a look in our filing cabinets and we can't find them anywhere. So the long and the short of it, it it appears that they had disposed of them. They disposed of the only copies that the writer had probably in much the same way as they disposed the only copies of the Lost Legion uh, that Sheila Canfield had. So you get into this situation where, although we know about the material, it it no longer exists. Uh, And I guess this sort of really comes on to another point that is just worthwhile saying, is that when Lost Stories are, are talked about, and they're talked about quite often every time Big Finish does something new with the Lost Stories, it sort of generates a a new round of responses and it's always interesting to hear what people think about them but but it seems almost like a, a, a few people or quite a lot of people sometimes seem to have it in their heads that just because we know something existed at one time it still does and with lost stories that simply isn't the case by and large the times that we have had hits of material where we've actually got something back where a storyline a scene breakdown a script still exists is remarkably small given the total number of stories and submissions that have been made over the years that have 
never gone anywhere. So just because we we might know of a story, I, I you know, off the top of my head, one that is often mentioned is the Laird of Macrimmon. And people will very often say, why don't Big Finish go and do the Laird of Macrimmon? Well, the Laird of Macrimmon was never a commissioned script. It was never a commissioned storyline. It was never a commissioned anything. It was basically an idea that Hazeman and Lincoln had very briefly. And if they did commit anything to paper, it was probably on the back of an envelope, a few scribbled ideas before they went off in a huge huff over not only the Dominators, but the Quarks as well. The BBC's handling of the Quarks and the fact that they didn't like the licensing. It didn't get anywhere near actually doing anything formal with it. As I said, it certainly wasn't commissioned. So nothing exists. So there is nothing to base a story on. We might know a title. We might know a very, very sketchy idea of what the thing might, the direction it might have gone in. But there's nothing really to base any story on. It's rather like the final Pertwee story, the, you know, the final game. We know that Barry Letts and Robert Sloman, you know, wrote most of their stuff together. But there's no evidence that anything was ever written down for it. Um, I spoke to Bob's wife, Mary, after he died, and she confirmed, no, there, there doesn't seem to be anything at all. There was definitely a commission for the final game, but that very, very quickly got changed to Plant of the Spiders. So just because that there was that idea that you might have this sort of final head-on battle between the, the Master and the Doctor, it doesn't get any further than that. It doesn't progress any more than that. So yes, we might know of an idea, we might know of a script, we might know of a story title that someone submitted, but that doesn't necessarily equate to the material still existing, uh, unfortunately, much as we would like it to. Yeah, but I suppose talking about things that exist, the ones that we know of, I suppose over the years that the odd one must have popped up that we'd never heard of. And I remember being surprised when Leviathan was mentioned by Big Finish when they announced that, and then Nightmare Country from Steve Gallagher. Were these ones that you knew of? I certainly knew of Leviathan. I'd written to Brian Finch, uh, who wrote Leviathan in 1992, I think. And Brian had written back to say, yes, I still have got the scripts. But he, he then went on to say, actually, I still think it's a really good story. And I've, at the moment, got a good intention to actually take that idea, strip the Doctor Who element out of it, and turn it into a novel. So he was he was sort of very interested still in doing something with that particular idea. Um, I don't think he ever did that, but you know that that was certainly his intention then, which is why he wasn't massively keen on because this was at the time when I was starting to write articles for Doctor Who magazine um, about you know lost stories and uh, little bits and pieces that were turning up, and he, he wasn't sort of terribly keen on all the plot details suddenly being revealed in a magazine. But yeah, I mean, probably the late 1980s, uh, early 90s, there were a couple of articles written in fan publications. Probably the earliest main one would have been in Time Screen, for anyone who remembers Time Screen, which is uh, one that Andrew Pixley contributed to many years ago. And there was a, a large article in there that was all about lost stories sort of really harvesting all the, the tiny little bits of information that were known about and just put them in into one large article. Some of the information in there wasn't accurate, 
Some of it was sort of close-ish, but not 100%. That was the article that I think was then taken and sort of rejigged in a slightly different format in um, DWB, in Dot2 Bulletin, many years later when they did a, uh, a similar sort of article. So a lot of the titles, uh, these sort of titles like Leviathan, were known about. I think I think Leviathan actually was one where they got the title wrong slightly. They misspelled it. So, so they were they were sort of vaguely known about as titles and sort of roughly the time period that they were written, but not really any details. Nightmare Country, I've got a feeling that was one that did come out of the blue rather. Don't think we were particularly aware of that one when it was when that was first announced. So once again, with stuff like Big Finish, it's, it can be very often down to who you know, can't it? You know, you start putting the feelers out and asking the right questions. So did you happen to do anything else? Yeah, and all of a sudden you suddenly find out that, yes, people did. There were other things that, that they did, which I think is, you know, one of the reasons why we ended up having the, the first Sontarans from Andrew Smith uh, a few years back. I, I remember Andrew sent me, very kindly sent me a copy of that outline, and I think it was one that he'd done slightly earlier than that called The Dark Samurai. So, you know, he'd obviously been very busy doing his stories at uh, that time, uh, and it's it's one of those things where I think that I, I mean thinking back to Andrew, I remember when Full Circle was announced, and there was the article in it. Uh, I think it was in Celestial Toy Room, and uh, there was another article in Tardis as well at the time. And of course, it was obviously a big thing that you know he was a, a Doctor Appreciation Society member who was getting a a story written and I've got a nasty feeling that opened up the floodgates as far as the production office went. I, I should imagine that prior to that it was fairly fairly sedate and seasoned writers would be the ones who would be coming in saying I've, I've got an idea could I sort of pitch this to you uh, and then all of a sudden you know you, you had everyone in the Doctor Appreciation Society thinking they could probably get a story into the next season including me. <laughs> yeah, so I, I did send a, an appalling idea in at one point and, um, and got a, a letter back from Eric. But yes, it, it, it's, it's one of those things, I think, that um, when you sort of hit 19, the 1980s, and I think there are, there's some evidence of this in, in John's personal archive as well, because there's sort of quite a number of communications that the storylines don't necessarily exist but there's quite a number of communications in there with people who are very obviously fans who have sort of sent in various ideas that they've got and pitched various ideas and so thank you very much but you know we can't do this but it, it i mean interestingly it wasn't just it wasn't just fans who were doing it uh, at that particular time uh, amongst the material that was at the bfi there was a couple of very interesting things very interesting letters in there, one of which was sent, uh, I think, about the same week that the letter to Sheila Canfield was written that we were talking about, and that was from the actor George Baker, wow. a letter, letter to the actor George Baker, because George, after doing Full Circle, had shown an interest in writing a Doctor Who story, and had approached Eric, and Eric said exactly the same thing, he said, look, I'm just about to go off on leave for, you know, six, seven weeks or whatever, but when I come back, yes, let's let's fix up, fix up an arrangement. And you can come in and, and we'll have a chat about it. So, you know, you had someone like George Baker who was uh, possible for doing it. And quite out of the blue, there was also a submission from Peter Howell as well. 
So rather than sitting there behind the keyboard, he decided to try his hand at writing a Doctor Who story as well. Peter, I'm fairly sure he hasn't got it. I asked him fairly quickly if he had. Uh, he did tell me the name of it, and I can't remember what it was now. It was something like Electricon 5, something like that. But there's a, there's a letter that went back to Peter at the time, basically saying, you know, thanks for the idea, but this is going, this would be far too expensive for us to do. So thank you very much for, for it, but uh, no thanks. I wonder who'd have done the music for that if it had been produced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course we know that there were quite a few other season 23 stories that for the trial season that we ultimately never got to things like David Halliwell's Attack of the Mind, I think that was one of them. It was, yes. Oh dear, Attack of the Mind. Oh dear. This brings back horrible memories. Oh dear, so, I've yeah, triggered you. A, a, Attack of the Mind. I, uh, David Halliwell was mentioned somewhere. I've got a feeling that actually there was a short interview with David in a fanzine somewhere at the time. So I managed to find an address for David and I contacted him and a uh, lovely man that he was, he said, yes, I've still got all my stuff. And he sent the whole lot to me. So, um, the, so the situation was that um, when they sat down, they decided to do the trial season. The trial season was already locked down to start with Robert Holmes's story, then go to Philip Martin. It was the remaining six episodes that was more of the unknown. No, actually, I'll revise that. It's not the six episodes, it's the four episodes in the middle, the bit that we now refer to as being that Vervoid story, Terror of the Vervoids. Those last two episodes were always going to be written by Robert Holmes to finish up. So it was those, those uh, that, that middle section that was a bit unknown at the time. So David Halliwell, amongst his paperwork, had a letter from Eric Saywood inviting him to go to a script meeting in July 1985. And David had kept all his notes from that meeting as well. And they were explaining what the concept of the trial season was to him. And the idea was that it was going to be both him and Jack Trevor's story were going to write two stories of two episodes each but they would have to share the same sets in the stories so that they go through they go through all this content i don't know if jack trevor's story was there the the tone of the note seemed to suggest that perhaps he wasn't and that they were just putting that information in that he was going to be commissioned but after that meeting the commissioning happens so for david halliwell he, he gets commissioned to write attack of the mind and Jack Trevor's story gets to write a story called The Second Coming. We don't know if Jack Trevor's story did anything. We've never been able to find out anything conclusive as to whether or not he ever got around to doing anything on his particular story. Um, there is a write-off document where they list a number of stories that were being written around that time, and they always included a reason very briefly as to why they weren't going to be using it. And both uh, Attack of the Mind and The Second Coming have got the same reason, which is unacceptable. So it may well be that Jack Trevor's story did write something for The Second Coming, but we've got no idea about that. But David Halliwell most certainly did for Attack of the Mind. And he sent me all the stuff he had. So that was right from his meeting notes, what he called his draft notebooks. So they were those spiral-bound notebooks where he wrote the entire script out 
in longhand in about five different drafts and then going right up to his final typewritten script, which is all set on the planet Penelope with the Freds against the Penelopeans. It's a very strange story. But it, it, it went through and it wasn't used. Now, now, why this whole thing makes me cringe is that David sent, sent me all his stuff and I was going to write the article for Doctor Magazine, which I did, and I sent it all back to him. And then Royal Mail lost the lot. It never got back to him. And they couldn't find it. So uh, you can imagine how I was feeling at the time. David had told me that there was, I think, a fan in New Zealand, from memory, who had offered to buy the material from him. And he told me how much that was. So by way of, way of compensation, when I had to fess up to him, I sent him a check for quite a bit more than that and said, look, I, I would have happily bought this material had it been available, but it's through my hands that it's got lost. And I feel sort of duty bound to give you something for it, which he was, bless him, absolutely fine about. You know, he was he was really kind and really thankful, which was lovely. But I just absolutely cringe the fact that it, you know, that Royal Mail decided to do their best. And so, you know, if it suddenly turns up on someone's doorstep in a few years' time, having travelled around the world multiple times because they they couldn't read the address, uh, then maybe we'll get it back. Oh, unfortunately, I did take copies of it all. So, um, you know, so the work still survives, but yeah, the originals. Oh, goodness me. Yes, that was lost. So, yes, they were the two that were going to go into the Vervoid slot originally. Attack from the Mind and the Second Coming. When they get cancelled, it's at that point that they bring in Christopher H. Bidmead. And Chris is commissioned to write a four-part story. Rather than having two two-parters, he's commissioned to write a four-part story. So he gets to write, he's commissioned to write it under the title of The Last Adventure. But this is the script that becomes uh, Pinnacothica later on, which I think is the one that he still has. It gets to a point where that is deemed no longer acceptable either. That's the reason on the, on the write-off sheet that is given. And Eric writes to Christopher Bidmead on the 10th of February, 1986, to say that, you know, sorry, we can't do this anymore. And, uh, you know, and Chris is a bit upset by it, to say the least, because he feels like he's been in fairly close communication with Eric on what they need. Eric obviously doesn't feel so, feel that way. 2nd of February, 1986, he writes to John Nathan Turner. This is Eric where he says that he's now read Chris Bidmead's script three times. And he said, I find it boring gibberish and totally out of character with the first eight episodes of the season, which I think are now working well. Eric's decided that it really would need not only an end-to-end rewrite, but a total rethink from scratch. And he basically said, look, he said, really, we need a brand new story in here. And given Chris's personality, and I quote, inability to write what has been requested of him, a linear, fast-moving, humorous adventure, I think we're looking for a new writer. So he decides to junk the whole thing uh, at that point. 
So that obviously wasn't working terribly well. They, at that point, this is when they go to Peter Hammond, PJ Hammond, and they go along to PJ Hammond and Peter is commissioned to write a story under the title of End of Term, which then sort of morphs its way into Paradise Five. Now, when I spoke to Peter back in the 1990s, he seemed to be under the impression that the tide turned after he submitted the first episode and that it was John who very much decided that he didn't like the story that was being submitted and didn't want to do it anymore. He was certainly commissioned to write the whole thing, so I would assume that he probably did. But, yeah, he seemed to think that that Eric was quite happy with it, but John certainly wasn't, uh, which is the reason why they didn't want to go through with it. So those really were the the main beats of how the trial season was going to go. So you would have had Mysterious Planet and you would have had Mind Warp. Then, theoretically, it would have been Attack from the Mind and the Second Coming, but they get junked, so you have in its place either The Last Adventure or Pinnacothica, as it became, that gets junked. You then get End of Term, Paradise Five, that gets knocked on the head, uh, which is when Eric goes, oh, goodness me, what are we going to do now? We've got no time left. And John says, I know we'll get Pip and Jane Baker in to write something for us. Joy unbounded. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So here we go, the final question. What is the one that you would love mm. to find? The ultimate one. You've mentioned a few there, but which one would be your biggie? Well, I think probably what I would be really interested to find is Malcolm Hulk's The Hidden Planet, written in 1964, 63, 64. A very early story, which was fully scripted, as far as we know but which was ultimately turned down. Again, it's one that we've tried to, or I've tried to see whether or not anything survives. Malcolm's family is very few and far between. He has a a niece, I think, in Germany who was the executor of his estate, but it looks like nothing has survived of that. But I think anything that early on, you're really curious about about seeing what the development of the series was at that early stage, seeing the sort of possible directions, maybe they were taking things and taking characters at that early stage. It's um, it's very unusual to find anything that early. I mean, I was I was quite fortunate to find a few years ago Alan Wakeman's one episode of uh, The Living World, I think it was called, which was something that was started being written before the series was actually put into final production was actually aired um it was a very early script but anything that early is is obviously an absolute gem to find you know if you can just uh just to consider the directions that they were taking things that early on but yes it will be i I think the hidden planet will be a lovely one to find maybe one day we live in hope Or, or to quote the uh there's the, the line that I absolutely love. I think it's from episode three of the Crusades, The Wheel of Fortune. We live in hope that they will return one day, which you can apply to missing episodes and lost stories. Absolutely. What a, what a good way to end. Quick plug for your script books. Are they still available? The ones that you've done, you can maybe tell us they what are. you've released. So we've done two script books under Nothing at the End of the Lane. So we've done Farewell Great Macedon, 
which also so, so that's the uh, complete script which also includes the one episode Fragile Yellow Arc of uh, Fragrance along with a few related to articles looking at the background of them and so on and there's a second one which is all the material for the prison in space I would love to do more of them but as I said trying to find completed scripts is really really difficult and some of the completed scripts that we know survive unfortunately uh, the people concerned don't particularly want to let those out so um, we know that Christopher H. Bidmees has got his script for one of the stories that he did but he's not really happy about letting that out Brian Finch's script for Leviathan that's fully written but again the, the family isn't keen on that, that being done so you know you can but ask but you know uh, if if the answer's no then you just have to accept that unfortunately but yeah if uh, if I happen to find anything else that's sort of worthwhile printing then I'm sure we'll uh, we'll do another one Richard thanks once again my pleasure well thank you Richard thank you Kenny for seeking about obviously it's so depressing to think that <laughs> some of these other scripts might have been around for us to get some more information. You know the um, the Pennant Roberts one that he, they mentioned there, the French Foreign Legion one that I mentioned earlier, and the original version of what would have been Peter Davison's first story. That's fascinating. I mean, I've I've read some details about that. There's been some various things have sort of surfaced over the years about Chinese whispers, about what it was actually about, what it involved. Um, it's, just, it's maddening. To, I mean. We've talked. I think we've talked before about John Nathan Turner's archive and how much he took home when the office was getting closed down and all this sort of stuff. And I think he was quite, not to speak ill of the dead, but a little short-sighted and not realising the long-term value of a lot of this stuff. And it's maddening to think that you know. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just we'll just hold a breath and count to five. Yes. Right. Exhale. Exhale. And breathe. Much. So there we go. Better. Dave, you better. Um, we haven't uh, given the wee mention we will to your other podcast. Please tell us what you've been up to lately over on Earth 2. On Earth 2, we've reached 1972. As we speak, we have been working towards the, the 1972, the big Justice League, Justice Society crossover, which is a cast of thousands or dozens at least this year because they, they bring back another group of old um, DC heroes from the 40s that haven't been, haven't been around for a few decades. And because the cast is so big on this one, we've been getting some other people we know involved so that Peter and I don't have to do all the talking. So um, if you're not happy with um, with Kenny appearing every Thursday and Friday and powering three pieces of eight in a few weeks, you might be able to, you might be able to hear him joining in and, and giving voice to, to one of the legendary members of the Justice Society of America in the pages of the Earth 2 podcast. Of course, Kenny will retweet that, I'm sure, from all of his accounts when it happens, but... We're building up to recording that very soon. We've been kind of recording everyone else's contributions in quite a few months in advance, just so that we've got everything ready for when we, we try to stitch it up. So at the moment, I think the next episode out at the moment is either going to be the one about Roy Raymond, and then there's a really good Superman, um, Frankenstein, parallel dimension type thing out in a couple of weeks. So I have no idea <laughs> how interested um, the Doctor who listened to Power of Three might be, but you know, if you miss Dave Steele on a regular basis, you can always check it out, you know. And as I say, Kenny will be Kenny will be joining in, along with a few other voices you might know actually from other podcasts. Kenny's going to be joining in with it very soon. Fantastic! I look forward to hearing how it all comes together in the edit. And of course, oh, you know, we're talking of um, since today we've been talking about lost things. I suppose 
we lost out on a lot of Eighth Doctor adventures in the 90s when Radio Times cancelled the comic strip. Is this you, um, is this you manoeuvring towards the song that you've picked to play out no, with this No, it's not. It's not yet. Oh, right. Not yet. I'm actually, tomorrow's Pieces of Eighth is all about the unofficial 1997 Doctor Who annual, or the McAnual, as I've christened it. Copyright me. And uh, we've got a good chat with the editor of that, Mark Worgan, and also one of the writers. And we also bring part of one of the stories to life with a little bit of narration and sound design. And uh, that should be a wee laugh. So that's uh, on tomorrow's episode. That's one I was involved in because obviously Rebecca was otherwise engaged. And we can actually... can actually, I suppose, make an announcement on our behalf at this point, can't we? We can indeed, because uh, on the 28th of May, she gave birth to a little boy, Arthur Jake, uh, weighing eight pounds and six ounces. So, well done, Becca. Fantastic. Had, yeah, that's well that is a that's like a decent sized turkey at Christmas, and um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that's congratulations to Becca and her partner James on their new arrival. Yep, so mother and baby are doing well and will hopefully be home by the time this episode comes out. Um, so yes, that's it's great that there's a new arrival. It's always nice when th- something is found and delivered. Um, it's always quite bad when something's lost. Yes, we, we look forward to Arthur making his, his, his podcast debut, be it here or elsewhere. <laughs> I think that sounds like a good plan. Mm. World's <laughs> youngest podcaster. So, yes, we shall come round to that. But of course, Dave, it's nearly time for us to go today. Mm. But, um, yes. what, which means um, with, a, with a gun at my head, as usual. Kenny, what's, what, um, what copyright baiting um, tune are you going to play out with this week? Well, Dave... This episode has been, as we've heard, all about lost stories. And if we didn't have the lost stories, then for this episode, we'd have been pretty lost without them. And um, and indeed, if we didn't have Richard Bignall, I'd be a bit lost without you, sir. So we're going to go for a Kylie song. It's Lost Without You. So until next time, uh, we'll be back next week when myself and John and Stevie will be talking about the Fourth Doctor audio adventures not those ones, the 1970s ones. Piscatons and Exploration Earth. Yes, so get your piccolos ready, everyone. Thank you for listening. I'll see you at some point, I'm sure. All the best. Cheers, everyone. Over to you, Kylie. Out of a demand the storm Even when my heart was torn Thunder in the night sky Running from a town like this Crashing with a stolen kid